Uh, Our scripture reading uh, this morning is uh, coming from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to be reading uh, really the whole chapter, verses 1 uh, to 23. If you've been with us this Advent season, um, you know that we've been looking at the ideas of kingship uh, all throughout the scriptures, um, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, We started out by uh, looking at uh, Israel's desire for a king, God's people's uh, desire for a king, and we recognize that deep down probably all of us uh, at some level desire a king. Uh, We probably wouldn't put it in that term, um, but we would say all of us desire uh, people in authority, rulers above us, people with power, Um, to work towards justice and equity and peace and prosperity. So that really is a a common desire. Uh, We looked at King Saul, who was the first king of God's people, and uh, we saw that he was presented with lots of circumstances that required faith, uh, but instead of responding in faith, he often responded in fear. And much of his kingship was defined by that fear. Uh, We then looked at King David, and we saw how he was the the kind of quintessential king of Israel's history, uh, a man after God's own heart, and yet we also saw that he was an incredibly flawed person. Uh, In fact, the scriptures uh, probably detail uh, his uh, horrible, heinous crime more than any other uh, crime throughout the scriptures. Uh, So he certainly wasn't perfect, and neither was his son Solomon. Uh, His son Solomon started out really good, but later in his life uh, wandered away from the Lord. He was uh, married to all sorts of different foreign wives uh, who uh, introduced him to foreign gods. And so what we've seen all throughout is that all of these kings leave us wanting. Uh, They leave us desiring for something more, hungering for something different. And so when when the Gospels open up in the New Testament... Uh, we recognize that something different is about to happen. And one of the things that the gospel writers are all very uh, passionate to do is to help us understand the political context, the political details in which Jesus was born. And our passage in Matthew is no different. Uh, So I'm going to be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 2, again, verses 1 to 23. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose 
went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we uh, pray for our own hearts as we reflect on the Christmas story. Um, it is a familiar story to us, and so it has the danger of just becoming white noise. But I pray that we would see this Christmas story with new and fresh eyes, that we would behold the beauty of this baby who was a king, and that you would refresh our hearts in the good news that this king brought, the good news of forgiveness and salvation. So be with us as we meditate on your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things that uh, really all the gospel writers do uh, as they write the accounts of Christ's birth is they focus on how different people reacted to the birth of Jesus, to the coming of this new king. And so one of my favorite lines in the, in the birth narrative is that Mary pondered, uh, treasuring all these things in her heart. Uh, I often think of Joseph's reaction. Joseph had to be in awe. Uh, Joseph had to be afraid to sleep because of all the things that had happened to him when he dreamed. And he had to imagine that he was just along for the ride as all of these different things happened in the birth narrative. One of the more interesting reactions is Simeon. We read about him later. Simeon had long awaited for the Savior to come. And when uh, the, the child was dedicated, uh, Simeon then later died satisfied because he got to see the new king 
who was born. And so what all the gospel writers want to do is really beg the question. Uh, This is how others reacted to the birth of Jesus Christ, but how will you react to Jesus' birth? And our passage this morning is really no different because it offers us two possible responses to the birth of Jesus Christ, this new king. And the responses are very different and they're very extreme, but they beg the question to each one of us, how will we respond to the birth of this new king? And so the first kind of extreme response that we see is Herod's response to this new king. And a passage says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. I think it's pretty safe to say uh, that Herod, King Herod, is probably one of the most reprehensible characters that you will ever read about in the scriptures. So take a minute, imagine probably the worst world leader that you can think of in recent history, and I'm willing to bet that King Herod is worse than him or her that King Herod was awful in the way that he had led uh, the people in the way that he had ruled his region. He would give all those people a run for their money. So who is this king? Who is this king of the Jews? Who is this man uh, who figures so prominently in the birth narrative? Well, after King Solomon, uh, the kingdom divides, God's people, the kingdom divides between a kingdom in the north and in the south. And for hundreds of years, they have different kings ruling, and each year, each decade, each century, uh, the people of God diminish in their power and they diminish in their influence. Uh, So much so that later in their history, they are conquered. The Assyrians and the Babylonians, they come and they conquer God's people. Well, shortly thereafter, a, a new nation emerges, the Persians, and the Persians come in and they conquer the Assyrians and the Babylonians. After that, the Greeks come along, and the Greeks conquer the Persians, and then shortly thereafter, the Romans come, and they conquer the Greeks. So the Romans were one of the most uh, powerful nations in the ancient world, and so when the New Testament opens up, uh, the Romans are the ones who are in charge. They are the ones who are in power. And what the Romans' practice was, was to set up vassal rulers or or client kings amongst their entire empire. And so in Judea, the the area in which this birth narrative happens, in Judea, these kings were called the Herods. And it was a long uh, dynasty of Herods over the years, but when Jesus is born, uh, King Herod the Great is the ruler over Judea. And he's towards the end of his kingship, and it's been quite a ride for God's people as they are ruled by this really reprehensible king. Because throughout all of his kingship, he's done one thing really well. He's made a lot of enemies. Everyone had a hard time with King Herod. The Jews, they couldn't stand King Herod because he really wasn't Jewish. In fact, if you research him a little bit, you realize he was Idumean. He was um, uh, really a a descendant of Ishmael. So the fact that he was given the title king of the Jews was something that the Jews hated, that they couldn't stand that he had the right to bear that title. 
But of course, he wasn't the ultimate ruler of his day. He was a client king or a vassal ruler, so he only had limited power that was given to him by the Romans. Because his power was so limited, he was pretty paranoid. He wanted to hold on to the limited power that he had, and anyone that tended to threaten that power, he wanted to treat with all sorts of violence and brutality. And of course, that is how he reigned throughout his kingship. His name actually means offspring of a hero, but really, in many ways, he is the villain of this story. He had a great propensity for violence and bloodshed. Um, uh, He would kill anyone who threatened the throne. In fact, there's stories about two of his own sons that tried to uh, grab power, and he had his own two sons executed for trying to steal his power. Uh, Historians tell us he had ten wives. Anytime I hear things like that, what do you do on Valentine's Day when you have ten wives? Well, he had ten wives, and even two of those wives, uh, many historians think, were his nieces. So, kind of an interesting guy uh, in all the ways that he ruled, the stories that surround him. And so, he was a client king, he was brutal, he was bloodthirsty, and he was so paranoid about losing his own power that it was said that it would be better to be Herod's pig than to be one of Herod's children. Not a really nice thing to be written about you. And so think about this character of a man. Think about the way he ruled. Think about his character. And then imagine his surprise when wise men show up at his palace and announce to him that a new king has been born. Now, if, if, if Herod was a good Jew, a good and faithful Jew he would have rejoiced at this announcement because the the long-awaited descendant of King David, the long-awaited king, perhaps now he has arrived. Could this actually be the Messiah? But not Herod. That was not his response at all. He reacted the way he did to all threats to his throne, all threats to his kingship. He reacted with violence. And so he launches into this original conspiracy that doesn't really work out. And so he launches into an even worse plan B. And it tells us about that in verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Uh, Just a brutal, bloody chapter in the birth story of Jesus Christ. Of course, our passage tells us that Jesus was rescued. Joseph is warned in a dream that this is about to happen. So in many ways, he and Mary and this baby become political refugees. They have to, to flee to Egypt in order to escape this oppression. And so what we see from Herod is that his response to this new king is one of violence and brutality, because at the end of the day, nothing will stand in the way of his authority and in the way of his power. But what Matthew is careful to do here is to show us that there is another response to this Jesus who would be born king, and he shows us the response 
of these wise men. And we read about them in verse 1 where it says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I'm really thankful this morning uh, that we read at least a part of the song, We Three Kings. And uh, Sean and I didn't plan that. It it just worked out as it often does. Um, uh, And don't get me wrong when I say this. I love that song, We Three Kings. But I have to say that it is probably one of the most biblically inaccurate Christmas carols we ever sing. In fact, I think Frosty the Snowman may be more of a biblically accurate hymn than We Three Kings. Uh, Really, uh, most of the blanks of the Christmas story, and we don't know much about these wise men, so so church history and Christian history has tried to fill in those blanks, and, and that's where we get songs like We Three Kings. Uh, But at the end of the day, we don't know much about these men, these kind of mystery men uh, that came to visit Jesus. We know that there was probably more than just three. In fact, a lot of people think that they probably numbered closer to 12, but really we don't know how many men there really were. They probably weren't kings either, um, which is interesting where that kind of story emerged as well. Um, All we know is that they were wise men, or they were magi. And so some have thought them to be astrologers, uh, people who looked to the stars um, and to the natural realm in order to provide guidance for life. Uh, Some people thought they were cultists. Uh, There was a cult in the East uh, called Mithraism. It was an Eastern mystical religion. And some people have thought, well, that's who these men were. They were cultists. Uh, Others have looked at them and said they were uh, simply philosophers who um, philosophized on the nature of reality and the world. But really, we don't know the nature of who these men were. But we do know that when they arrived in town, people noticed. These were not big towns, so something that was significant that happened quickly spread throughout the town. And all of a sudden, these mystery men emerge in this town, and they have everybody talking. These really bizarre men, they have the whole town troubled because they arrive saying that they were guided by a star. Now, they certainly were not Jewish. They looked incredibly different. They talked incredibly different. They were from a pagan Gentile religion, and yet somehow, in some miraculous way, The things that they were saying were consistent with the Jewish prophecies written in the book of Micah. And what the story tells us is that when they find the baby, it says this, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense, and myrrh. Now just imagine this scene for a moment. 
Imagine what Mary and Joseph are thinking, incredibly overwhelmed by everything that has already happened to them, and all of a sudden these bizarre men show up bearing all sorts of wealth and gift gifts that Mary and Joseph couldn't even have ever imagined. They're looking incredibly bizarre, and yet they bow down and worship this baby as the true new king. You see what Matthew's doing here is he's setting up a comparison. On one hand, you have a very hollow king, one who was consistently threatened in his kingship, and so he reacts with all sorts of paranoia and violence. He refuses to bow down to anyone who would claim to be a new king. And yet, on the other hand, you have these men from the east who come to Mary and Joseph and quickly bow and worship this new king. And you see what Matthew's doing is he's beautifully articulating the different responses that people have to Jesus as king. And when you think about it, Matthew kind of paints them in very a very extreme brush. These seem like very extreme responses to this new king. But at the end of the day, these responses may be much more familiar to us than we are ready to realize. Because think about it this way, that often people in our world react to the good news of the gospel. They react to the reality of a new king in very similar ways as well. For some, when they hear about Jesus as king, they choose instead, like Herod, to reject that king and instead double down on their own sense of autonomy, independence, and authority. You see, in the ancient world, with the arrival of a new king, everybody knew that things would change that the old systems of authority would need to go away, and that a new authority was now being established. A new authority had arrived. And one of the things that we have to realize is that when King Jesus arrives, he comes to establish a kingdom. And whenever a kingdom is established, that king comes with demands. And King Jesus is no different. Because when Jesus comes, he says that he comes making demands. He comes calling us to die to ourselves and instead live for him and to live for his glory. And what that means is this, is that if you have entered into a right relationship with Jesus, if you have experienced the gift of salvation, then that means that Jesus is now your king. And what that means is that he is the one who now calls the shots. He's the one who calls the shots in your life. Your will, your desires, your wants, your own independence, your own authority takes a secondary place to the King Jesus who now rules in your heart. Friends, this is difficult for many it's abrasive. It's, it's challenging for us to accept. And maybe, that it, maybe it should be. 
Maybe that's exactly the offense of the gospel that the scriptures talk about. Because Jesus is certainly merciful and compassionate and long-suffering. But make no mistake, he is also a king. A merciful king, yes, but still a king. And what that means for his followers is this. Is it means that everything about us ultimately becomes his. Our time, it becomes his. Our will, our desires, they become subservient to the will and desires of our new king. Our money, our talents, our gifts, our our energy, they all are given in service to this new king. See, the reality is this, is that many of us want the savior part of Jesus. But many of us also want, would rather reject the king part of Jesus. But Jesus actually never makes that available to us. Because when we enter into a relationship with him, he not only becomes our savior, but he also becomes our king. Yes, he has come to establish salvation, that which we most need, but he has also come to establish his kingship. And you see, friends, that is exactly what the Magi, these mystery men, that is exactly what they understood. And that's why the only most appropriate response to the arrival of the king is this, to submit to him, to give to him everything, and to worship him with all that we are. You see, Christ is the king that our hearts most need, and he is the king that our hearts most long for. He is the one who has come to establish peace and prosperity and welfare. And he calls us first to repent of being our own saviors, but also to repent of attempting to be our own kings. And what he calls us to instead is this, to submit to his kingship, to give everything that we are to him, and to worship him with our entire beings. Let's pray.